And then he is the chillest dog at home. He goes to try to get upstairs. Um, he's extremely chill. But he loves it. Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to today's Medical Grand Rounds. Before we get started on today's Medical Grand Rounds, I want to remind you we had Cook, Eat, Learn here as we do the first Friday of each month. That is an idea of helping us all be more competent in culinary matters so that we can discuss these things with our patients. We actually have a culinary medicine program here uh, at Dartmouth, and it's part of our Weight and Wellness Center, and they educate students and other learners as well as practitioners and, of course, patients and their families. Today we had a quiz because today, first of all, the topic was snack and desserts, and there was this wonderful watermelon feta salad that is healthy and nutritious. Um, the trivia question was, however, name two snacks that are packed with energy and nutrition such as you might carry in your backpack when you go out on a hike. And the winner picked it random from an overwhelming number of entries, was correct. Ed said peanut butter and dried fruit. Those are two great answers. Elaine Kuhn, come up and get your prize, which is, as I understand it, uh, a kind of a trail mix snack of nuts and fruit and things like that. Well done. <laughs> All right. Without further ado, I am going to ask uh, Jeff Munson to come to the podium to uh, introduce today's speaker to us, who has declared no conflicts of interest. Jeff, of course, is an associate professor of medicine and the section chief of pulmonary and critical care medicine. Jeff, tell us about today's guests. Thank you, and thank you all for coming. Um, so it's a really a pleasure to introduce Sean Caples this morning. This is a particularly timely topic. Um, so the, which you just missed, the title slide um, is exactly right for us. This is not only coming to a hospital near you, it is coming to this hospital near you, and soon as in less than 30 days from now. So um, this sort of coincides with our kickoff of our own tele-ICU program, which is going to involve our institution and some of our regional partners. Um, so before we get to that, I want to introduce Sean. So Sean is... Um, uh, a survivor of growing up in western New York. So he grew up in Syracuse, New York, about an hour east of where I grew up and two hours east of where Hal Manning grew up. So clearly this is the hotbed of respiratory physiology. Um, he attended the School of Pharmacy at the University of Buffalo and then got his uh, doctorate from the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine at NYIT. He did his internal medicine residency at Bassett Healthcare in Cooperstown before doing his pulmonary and critical care uh, and sleep fellowships at the Mayo Clinic, where he now resides. Um, after joining the staff there, he got a Master's of Science in Clinical Research and is now an Associate Professor of Medicine there. Apropos to this talk, he directs the um, tele-ICU program there and is also the Division Director of Critical Care Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. He also has research interests in sleep medicine, so if any of you have any ideas about faking that while you're here, just... <laughs> 
Anyway, without any further ado, Dr. Caples. Okay, uh, let's see here. So F5. I failed in my duties. Oh, let's see here. Escape. This is a two-person job. Now, I think. Perfect. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. You think somebody who runs a digital program would know how to operate this kind of stuff? Well, thanks everybody for for having me. It's it's really great to be here. Um, I've gotten to know uh, some members of your team this year uh, as part of the the Tele ICU program. Uh, Mark Franklin and Steve Sturgeoner and Kara is here, and um, and it's been great. I, I will tell you that the last time, before 2019, the last time I was here was 20 years ago. I drove up from Cooperstown to apply for the fellowship, the Palm Crit Fellowship, a mythical place. We had a lot of Dartmouth folks that rotated through Bassett and Cooperstown and the Iron Tower in the forest and mountains. And Don Mahler was the program director, the guru of dyspnea. And I will say, at the time, I was blown away by the physical plant. And coming back 20 years later, it looked the same. It was exactly the same, and, and I already killed my punchline here, but including the globe lights, <laughs> which took me right back to surfing the shopping malls and the arcades. Don't ever change these lights. They're, they're fantastic. And I'll tell you what, our team was here, and we all got in the rental car, and they all said, did you see those lights? <laughs> All right, so I don't have any disclosures. I will mention Philips. They're our, they're our industry partner. Um, we pay a fee to, to partner with them. I don't benefit from any of that. So as an outline, as, as Dr. Munson just mentioned, you folks are launching your Tele-IC program soon, and it just so happens that we're uh, joining along to provide some nighttime support, uh, at least in the short term, and to share some ideas. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of tele-ICU and some of the care models. And I want to leave you with the fact that tele-ICU does improve important outcomes. There's no doubt about that. But it doesn't happen everywhere and it doesn't happen all the time. And it probably turns out that it's the non-technical issues that really drive success. And I'll, I'll show you some, some data on that. So every program, every hospital, every system will have what I call digital nihilists. Those are people who don't think we need to be doing this. Why are you wasting money on a digital program when we should be hiring bedside providers? I had the same thing eight years ago when we started talking about the program at Mayo Clinic. But I, will, I have come to learn, and I was one of those guys, I have to say. Eight or nine years ago, I wondered whether this was really the thing to be doing, but I was pegged to do it, and so I, I took it on. And now I've drank the Kool-Aid, and there's no doubt about it that if you ignore it, it's at your own peril. It is happening. Telemedicine in general is growing, and it is not going to go away. Inpatient and outpatient models are being developed. Buildings like this are being built. This is the Mercy Virtual Care Center in St. Louis. They're one of the biggest EICU programs in the country. They, they monitor over 800 beds coast to coast. Uh, Texas Children's just put up another one. Mayo is talking about building infrastructure like this. So this is the future of what we're doing. There's no doubt about that. Here's just a sampling of some of the programs at Mayo and elsewhere. Telestroke, Teleneuro, Teleradiology. I'd, I'd be scared if, if you knew a close friend who was going into radiology. Between artificial intelligence and telemedicine, you're not going to need as many radiologists in the dark rooms. So what's the operational definition of tele-ICU? In one sentence, it's the provision of care to critically ill patients located a distance from the critical care specialist. And we accomplish the job of caring for patients mostly through four general um, mechanisms. And this is probably in order of importance. So the first is we monitor patients for physiologic deterioration. We identify when they're deteriorating so that we can intervene and rescue. And that's done a lot, mostly through the software. We promote evidence-based practices for clinicians on the ground who, who aren't critical care specialists, who can provide a lot of great care, but they don't know all the you know, latest evidence. Number three, we serve as a resource for expert advice and guidance 24-7. Whenever they need it, they can call. 
And lastly, this is an important point, we collect performance data so that we can feed that, feed that back to the practices for quality improvement and, um, and for metric analysis. So the, the concept of tele-ICU or even telemedicine in general is predicated on the implicit value and the expertise of the intensivist and the critical care team, nurses, NPs, infrastructure. And you can fill in the blank there. You can pick telemedicine specialty of your choice. It's reliance on those experts to improve the care of patients in their respective <laughs> care units. So in our case, the ICU. So Charles Durbin, um, I never met the man, but he wrote an editorial more than 10 years ago in critical care medicine talking about uh, delivery of care for critically ill patients. And, and I just want to read his quote. Having an intensivist involved in the care of ICU patients is undoubtedly the most effective intervention to improve survival of the critically ill that has been devised in the past 30 years. That's a bold statement. Uh, it takes a special person to say those kinds of things on paper in an editorial in a big, in a big journal. I think it does illustrate the point of the value of, of tele-ICU medicine, but it also illustrates the point that every program needs an ambassador. It needs somebody to push the message. And some are really good at that. I, I'm kind of a quiet person. I don't like to toot a, toot a horn very much, but every program needs that. And as I met the, the members of your group, I wondered who that person was going to be. And, um, you know, so I, I, I met Mark Franklin, and um, he's a gregarious guy, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe this is the guy who will be able to spread that word. And then when he whipped out his giant iPhone, I knew that he was the man. Like, who carries an iPhone cover like this? <laughs> Tire treads on the state of New Jersey emblazoned on an Italian flag. It's, a, it's amazing. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So I knew. And then this morning, my, th th this was, <laughs> there, there it is. There it is. This morning, all of this crystallized again as he pulled up in a cherry red Jeep, top down, hair flown in the wind. I, I, knew, I knew this was the guy. So it comes down to supply and demand, as, as it, it does in, in, in healthcare in general, but th I think this is why telemedicine is starting to take off. As, as the population grows, the population gets older, the population gets sicker, we just don't have the same number of providers to give that care. So I'll ask you, I'll just have you throw out a value. The proportion of intensive care units nationwide that are staffed by a bedside intensivist is what percentage? Throw it out. 20. 50. 15 to 20. Somebody say 50? So the is 14, and this is a couple years old, uh, but probably close to that. So a small percentage. The proportion of ICUs nationwide that utilize ICU telemedicine. Higher, lower, the same? Lower. lower. You'd think so. It's probably a little bit higher. So this is, well, it doesn't come out very well. Sorry about that. But this is, an, this is a dated slide now. It's almost 10 years old. This comes from Philips. Um, these are all of the tele-IC programs across the country 10 years ago. At the time, the estimate was about 10% of all beds, now it's probably 15 to 20. And you can see there's sort of geographic predilections. The Midwest is, is, is big on tele, telemedicine. Um, and it's estimated that every year this grows by about 1%. So it's, you know, it's really starting to, to take off now. So most tele-ICU programs are the hub and spoke model. And this is an example of what that is. That's, that's our model in Rochester. That's going to be your model here. And the hub is the command center, which if you haven't seen the command center, it's here. It's an impressive place. There's a lot of telemedicine programs um, spread out in a, in a big area. It's, it's a really nice place. We, we have nothing like that. It's, it's unique. But uh, So that's the command center. And then you've got the spokes. And the spokes are varied practices. Um, you could have ICU A. You could have ICU B. That's a little bit different. The makeup, there might be a hospitalist at the bedside. At ICU A, it might be a family med doc. In ICU-C, it might be a nurse practitioner. You might have a PCU with lower acuity patients, and the way you approach those patients are different than you would the ICUs. And then more recently, and this is championed by Craig Lilly at UMass, and I'll talk about it in a minute, they're connected to all of the EDs in their system. So in addition to caring for the patients in the ICUs, Craig and his group are able to actually manage beds from the ED 
to the hospital of their choice, to the bed of their choice. And so they've got, they've got exquisite control of all the patient flow within the ICUs across their system. Let's talk a little bit about the hub. Um, this is a schematic of, of uh, sort of the model of the hub. It's built upon the software and the electronic medical record. Um, on top of that, we have critical care nurses, we have critical care trained NPPAs, then we've got the intensivists, and then when we need it, we're able to reach out to the super specialist, a thoracic surgeon or a neurointensivist for curbside consults to help with um, you know, specific questions. So we're a centralized program. You're going to be a centralized program. That means everybody, all the providers are located, co-located in one centralized hub. And for us, that works really well. We're able to chit-chat. Uh, you know, behind the scenes, we hear phone calls coming in. We hear what kind of conversation is happening with the nurse. You kind of get an idea of, okay, something's happening there. I should, I should listen a little more closely. And so I think there's value to centralized uh, hubs. But there's lots of decentralized programs as well. I mean, if you think about it, all you need is a really good inter Internet connection. You need security, and you need a computer that can be put in your office at home or in your bedroom at home. So a lot of the under-resourced programs use a decentralized model where docs are at home. There may be a nurse. There may not be a nurse. If they're there, they might be in the, at their house as well. So there's lots of ways to do this, but I think there is value to the centralized hub. Yeah, so our, our model is we have 24-7 intensivists and critical care nurses. And by the way, all of our providers, nurses, NPs, docs, we spend most of our time at the bedside, but then we spend a minority of time uh, within the operations center, and I think you're going to have a similar model, and I think that makes for better care, right? If you're spending most of your time at the bedside, um, you're bringing all that knowledge to the monitor. At night, we're busier. Uh, we, have, we have more to do at night, so we bring in an MPPA um, to help offload that. And then, this is your operations center, you've got walking stations, which we've adopted. When I saw this, I knew we needed something that we could move around at 2 in the morning when you're ready to fall asleep, you need to get moving. And so we brought in, um, not this luxurious, but um, step machines. So that's the hub. What about the spokes? So these are the remote ICUs. Um, we call it a synchronous, continuous um, system. So data are flowing in continuously from the bedside monitor, all the vital signs, they're flowing in continuously from the EHR, labs, and medications, and that helps to drive population management with some software that I'll show you in a minute. There's high-definition audiovisuals, and um, it's all in real time, and it's a bi-directional interaction. So you can see this um, button on the wall. If someone in the room needs something emergently or they just have a question, they hit that button. We're notified in the operations center. We come in up here on the monitor. There's the video camera. There's um, audio stuff over here. Just a word about the video camera. Um, we use it proactively. We evaluate all new admissions. We lay eyes on every new admission, no matter if it's high acuity, low acuity, whatever. It doesn't matter. We, getting, that, getting that sort of snapshot at admission is really important. I'll show you data on that in a little bit. The nurses go in every 12 hours for sort of a nursing video assessment. And then we can reactively go in when the software says this patient might be deteriorating. We'll go in, check it out. It's kind of like peeking your head behind the curtain in the, at the bedside. You want to see what's going on in the bed. And um, sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes it's artifact. Oh, the oximeter fell off. I'll put it back on. Okay, I'm out of the room. I mentioned the camera because it's a major cultural issue. Um, it's a big brother thing. There's a creep factor uh, related to the, to the cameras. And this is within our own integrated health system. It took a long time to, come o to, to overcome that, and it took a lot of effort. And, um, and I think you guys are, are kind of learning what that's, what that's looking like. All right, so just a, a word about EICU software. We use Philips, but there are others out there. Philips sort of dominates the market. Um, they're partnering with, with DH as well. And so I've already mentioned uh, that the, the software interfaces with the live stream, and it's a continuous stream. And what it does, the, the value for us is, is population management. So we, we monitor over 100 beds. Well, how do, you, how do you monitor 100 beds and do it right? Well, we do that by color coding. So if there are data coming in that suggests the patient's blood pressure is coming down, the respiratory rate's going up, the heart rate's going up, 
we'll get color coding. And, and the red would indicate a patient whose last few refreshes of data suggest that they, they could be deteriorating. And so we'll go into this room if we see a, a red 21. We'll check things out. We'll make sure that everything's being done. Then there's yellows. That's kind of a in the middle. May, maybe some of these parameters look worse. Maybe some of them we don't know. And then there's greens. Greens are patients who have been stable, meaning all the data coming in, stability in vital signs, stability in the, in the, in the labs. You've got to be careful, though. Even the green patients, their risk of mortality is about 5 to 7% across all programs. And so it'll give you, it could give you a false sense of security, but it can allow you, you know, as you're looking at 100 patients, to sort of direct your efforts. And then at the bottom here, these are called sentry alerts. These come in if there's an acute, if two, two consecutive um, vital sign checks show something in unstable, you'll get uh, specific sentry alerts on a patient. So it's come a long way. 1981 was probably one of the first sort of tele-ICU programs out of Case Western, you know, these huge cathode ray tube television sets, really, um, between... Uh, the folks in Case Western and then a community hospital somewhere in suburban Cleveland. This was a failure, and mostly because it was equipment issues, really expensive stuff back then. And secondly, there was no sort of integrated software. It was basically, hey, let me run a case by you through this television screen. And, and it's, it was clunky, and uh, it didn't go very far for very long. And so some, many people thought for the next decade that this was going to be something dead, and then the folks from Johns Hopkins came up with the VisiQ software and everything sort of was rebuilt again. So just a few words about um, models, functions, and capabilities of uh, the EICU care model. I, I like to divide it into those programs that are reactive and those programs that are proactive. So what does a reactive program look like? They're mostly focused on identifying the deteriorating patient. They're, they're sniffing out for patients who might be going into shock, and they intervene when they need to. And these interventions are in real time. They can write for meds. They can write event order. They can communicate with local staff anytime they want. They might offer support for code blues or CPR. They might offer support, sort of oversight of procedures. They can interact with patients and families. And overall, the reactive programs probably do result in some culture change over time, but it's limited. As opposed to the proactive model, which, um, which, is, which involves bedside rounds with the team, bedside rounds with the family, talking to the patient every day. We leave progress notes on, um, on the chart every day in every patient who's in an ICU. Um, it's, it's laborious, and a lot of times you're not sure you're adding a ton of value because some of these patients are real low acuity, but it keeps an ICU fingerprint on every patient every day, and so that helps to drive the culture. Um, you can focus on things like bundle compliance, sepsis bundles, um, enforcing QI and sepsis initiatives. There's a lot to be said about nurse mentorship. Um, the, the really experienced critical care nurses in the operations center having those conversations with new ICU bedside nurses in the community. Um, that's really invaluable. I think for us that's been a huge uh, win for our system. We can do consulting for, for external clients. We can, we can look at things like the equipment that they, that they might purchase for ventilators, for example, or um, order sets. Um, how, do you do, how do you execute sedation and, and um, pain management, that sort of stuff. And really, the proactive approach drives practice integration. And over time, I think uh, the key is that the culture changes. It takes a while. It can take years. But really, it allows standardization and culture change across a practice. All right, so just a few words about our program. We, we launched in 2013. We started thinking about it about three or four years before that. And so our hub is, is obviously here in Rochester, and we've got six hospitals across southern Minnesota and western Wisconsin. They're all owned by Mayo. Um, they're all part of the Mayo system. Um, but, you know, it wasn't until we launched this program that we actually learned about those practices. And... Um, Sorry, that's the next slide. But uh, just to, to jump to some of the, some of the metrics, we, we did see a major reduction in mortality across our health system in the one year after implementation. So we did a, a pre-implementation survey. We collected a bunch of data. 
we, we did a, a one-year kind of washout period, and then we checked what, a year after that for things like mortality, length of stay, and we had significant reductions in those things. We had significant improvements in the, in the, the metrics that you see here. That would be bundles, um, compliance with low tidal volume ventilation, sort of that evidence-based stuff that we talked about. So um, a couple points about how we rolled that out, because if I did it again, I'd probably do it a little bit differently. It was basically decided in Rochester that this was coming to the health system whether you wanted it to or not. And um, for, for the health system who actually belonged to Mayo, that was still kind of a, a smack in the face. Like, this is coming, um, so you better get ready for it. And it wasn't that we didn't, we didn't go on the road and we didn't have uh, meeting sessions and all that kind of stuff. We did that, but it took a long time to sort of overcome the skepticism in the, in the system about what is, what's, the, what's the motivation here? Why is Mayo doing this? Is it, you know, is it a takeover sort of thing? We got over that. The other, the other thing was we also foisted this upon our intensivists. So um, if you were an intensivist in ICU X, you were part of the tele-intensivist program. You were going to do some tele-ICU work in addition to your bedside work. And it turns out, and this probably isn't a big surprise, it turns out that not everybody is very good on a camera. Not everybody is very good about having a, a crucial conversation over the camera. Not everybody, as I've already mentioned, is invested in the idea of telemedicine. So you should pick and choose the people who sit in front of your camera. Um, we also uh, unroofed a couple of abscesses in the system. We, we identified a really problematic provider who, um, who um, was creating major problems in one of, our, one of our systems. We didn't know that until we got involved as part of the tele-ICU program. That person is now gone from the Mayo practice. Um, we had to deconstruct one of the ICUs to a PCU because they just didn't have the infrastructure at the bedside to take care of a sick patient. And that, they were actually grateful for that because um, it improved their outcomes and it improved their metrics and it improved the relationship with Rochester. So it turns out that 44% reduction in mortality was driven by two of those hospitals. You know, the other four hospitals, pretty good. They're self-sufficient. They, they had good practices in place, and we didn't really budge their mortality or length of stay. But those two hospitals, we really changed, and that drove our numbers. So it took two years of relationship building, uh, one year before and two years after implementation, and, it, and it's ongoing. It, it still happens. It has to be an ongoing process. Um, but as I say, because we're proactive, I think it's driven culture change across our system, and we're much more integrated now, and our practice, our approach to the critically ill is much more standardized. All right, let's just talk for a few minutes about um, the published evidence for tele-ICU. So this was the first big study. This came uh, out of the VA system in Texas uh, and was published now 10 years ago. Big study, 2,000 patients. It was a before-after methodology, and this is how we have typically done this. It's before implementation, what does it look like, and how does it change after impl implementation. Six ICUs, five hospitals, and basically it was a bust. There were no differences in hospital or ICU mortality. There were no changes in length of stay. There were no improvements in ICU complications. So really, many thought this was a dagger in the heart of tele-ICU, a big um, a big paper showing really no differences. It's an expensive intervention. Um, people really wondered whether there was a future for this. When you did the postmortem on the study, there were, there were red flags there as to why this didn't work. And one of them is there was very limited buy-in on the receiving end. So only one out of every three patients had full discretion of the EICU intensivists, where they could actually write orders. They could actually get involved, change management, change the care plan. So most of those patients were still, you had to run things by the, the bedside uh, team. And so that's really clunky. It doesn't work. Really, one of the keys is you've got to be able to have a heavy hand from your operations center to make changes. Um, the EHR was disparate amongst those five hospitals. This one was Cerner. This one was Epic. This one was Meditech. That's a real pain in the neck, and it, and it really prevents integration. And importantly, there was no link with quality improvement. So any data that was fed back, and that was uncommon, there was really nowhere for it to go. It just kind of hit a brick wall. 
Contrast that with what Craig Lilly has done at the University of Massachusetts. So Craig, I have to give him a lot of credit. He really has driven the big data and, and the really important papers that have been published in tele-ICU medicine. And they published this just a few years later. This was already underway when that publication from Texas came out. And so they were committed to moving forward to finish this. And they were also committed to closing everything up if it turned out that their data replicated no improvements. But it turns out that these were pretty impressive improvements. So this was a one-center integrated health system at UMass, big numbers, more than 6,000 patients, seven ICUs across their community, and of varied backgrounds, three medical units, three surgical units, a CV unit. So it's a closed, integrated system with a culture of quality improvement. And that was, that's driven a lot by uh, Rich Irwin and, and, and Craig. And they were, they were heavy-handed about it. They did not allow any opt-outs. Any patient who was admitted to an ICU um, was given the full discretion of the EICU team. Any order they wanted to write, whether it was colase or norepinephrine infusion, that came through the tele-ICU. And that was an agreement across those, the system. And Craig developed it. It became more than just a hub. It became a logistics center. As I've already mentioned, he was able to take patients in the ED, send them to whatever hospital had beds and had resources, and um, he controlled the whole thing. That's a lot of work. Um, few could do it like, like Craig does, uh, but it works really well. And so their results were a big turnaround from just a few years earlier. They, they showed almost a 2% reduction in mortality. And there are a few things that result in critical care in a 2% reduction in mortality um, in, in real data. Their hospital length of stay more than three days reduced. I mean, you think of the cost savings there. This, this was a huge intervention. And when you looked a little more closely, it turns out that there was more value and stronger results in the patients who were admitted during the off hours. So patients admitted at 2 a.m. when the bedside crew is really a skeleton uh, and the EICU really gets involved from time zero, those patients really benefited a lot more. So if you look here, hospital mortality during the day 11.5 to 11.1, not much. But look at this here, 16.1, 12.7. Look at length of stay, almost five days less in patients who were admitted during off hours. So it's, it's bringing those resources when you really need it at the right time. You've seen forest plots before. The idea of this slide is not to go through these papers and say this one did this and this one did that. What I want you to look at is the heterogeneity here. So this is mortality outcomes. Uh, from all these papers. This was pre-Lilly, but um, you can see here that there are lots of different programs and lots of different outcomes. Some had robust improvements in mortality. Some had, had uh, worsening mortality with implementation of a tele-ICU program. A few had no significant changes. They crossed the line of one. And so what's the deal there? Um, first of all, the methodology that we've relied on for years is the before-after comparisons, but there's a lot of problems with that, right? And these are, some, these are some of those problems. So severity of illness and case mix can confound those. You know, there might be differences before and after. Um, you, you don't account for coincident interventions that occur over that time. So, for example, uh, if you've also focused on reductions in transfusions and you've shed a light on low tidal volume ventilation at the same time as you're running an EICU program, all three of those things have an impact on mortality, and, and these papers don't look at those. That relates to the temporal trends in care, right? What happens over time? And then there's this concept of regression to the mean. If you measure something at time zero, and then you measure it again at time zero plus X, there's a tendency for things to kind of run back to the mean. So, there's, so we have to look at it a little bit differently. And we know we have the technology. The technology part is easy. It's getting better all the time. It's getting easier to implement. The qualitative aspect, the quantitative aspects of what we do are really clearly developed. The question is, how do we apply the technology? And the key probably lies within the qualitatives. And um, Jeremy Kahn from Pittsburgh just published this um, a month or two ago, did a nice paper, uh, an ethnographic study. And what does that mean? It's, a, it's basically, what is the culture of telemedicine? And what is it about the culture? What are the qualitative aspects that drive efficacy of your program? And I'll just point out, and I just noticed this yesterday, uh, this person has ties to Dartmouth. Um, does anybody know who that person is? Yeah. Yeah. Who's the person? 
Amber Bernardo, she's a uh, professor at TBI and applied to the Air Foundation. Oh, perfect. Uh, fantastic. I think that's amazing. Uh, I don't know where the tele-ICU programs were located. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, articulated in the, in the methods of the paper, but there were six hubs, six operation centers that serviced 10 target ICUs. And so they chose, they chose the ICUs that had variations in efficacy of their programs. So five of the ICUs had a mortality benefit with, um, with tele-ICU. Three of them showed harm, showed worsened mortalities. Uh, after tele-ICU implementation, and then one or two showed kind of no change. And so they, they had a nice sample of um, varied outcomes, and they spent a lot of time on interviews, surveys, focus groups, um, looking at sort of the cultural issues surrounding implementation of the programs. And basically they came up with a conceptual model that identified three primary domains that are all interrelated. So the three domains are the leadership practices, both within the tele-ICU hub and at the target ICUs. What is, two, what is the perceived value of telemedicine? How do you roll that out? How do you um, champion? And three, what's the organizational characteristics? What's the hierarchy of it? And then they concluded that this is uh, sort of um, predictable, but the care delivery that is appropriate, meaning it should be there when it's needed and not there when it's not. It should be responsive. It should be there immediately when needed. It should be consistent, and it should be integrated. Those are all sort of the key words, and this all leads to clinical effectiveness. And I just wanted to walk through, I've got a few minutes, I wanted to just walk through a few of these domains and um, explain what they mean by that. So leadership seems pretty obvious. It's meetings, regular meetings in person between the telemed people and the target ICU people, leaders together to talk about it. And then the quality reporting. I already, already mentioned one of the real values that we bring, and then Phillips helps us do this, is we generate quality metrics every quarter and we feed it back to the to the practices, and then we can have discussions about it. Hey, I see your transfusion numbers have gone down a little bit. How can we help with that? So that's leadership. Perceived value. Telemedicine staff education related to the local ICU. So filling in the people on this end about workflows, about culture, about the practice on the other end. So the more we know, the better integrated we can become. Here's a big one. Communication training for telemed staff. And this goes from nurses and office personnel all the way up to the docs. I've seen it, I've seen it myself. Some of us are not really good communicators. You'd think after med school and fellowship and all that stuff, we'd, we'd be good at this, but we're really not. So um, training helps. Standardized communication practices that support proactive interventions when there's emergencies and reactive, reactive interventions at scheduled times so as not to disrupt workflow. Go in there when the patient's dying, but if, if the nurse is maybe given a sponge bath or you know, passing meds, you going in just interrupts them. They have to look at you, they have to talk to you on the camera. Hey, I'm doing something here. Okay, I'll see you later. That's, that's annoying to people on the other end. Um, ICU needs a telemedicine champion on that end. Somebody on the ground there who understands the concept and who can support the overall model. Um, ICU receives regular visits from staff through an ambassador, Franklin. Um, Non-clinical remote interaction. So what we've done is every summer we have a summit. We invite um, anybody in the system to come to Rochester and we have, we have speakers, we have education sessions, we have sort of nursing team building sessions. And it's, it's to be able to interact with each other away from the camera and away from work. And that helps with relationship building. Here's, here's one that's interesting, and I think we've talked about this here. Messaging the attending physicians with updates to prevent surprises on arrival in the morning. Um, there's probably a lot of value in that. Uh, I think it's all happened to us before we were 24-7 in the house. We'd come in in the morning and, well, nobody told me this. I mean, where did this come from? I would like to a call. 
So, so um, I think devising some kind of a, a system that notifies the attending before they come in that, hey, this is what you're going to walk into. And the third one is organizational characteristics. Here's a big one, um, use of two-way cameras. You'd be surprised at how many programs use a one-way camera where uh, the hub can see you, but you can't see the face that's talking to you from the ceiling. That's really creepy. <laughs> People don't like that. So two-way cameras really helps. Not only that, when you get to know each other outside of the camera, then you recognize the face. And hey, it's a familiar face. Um, staffing the telemedicine facility with clinicians with expertise specific to the target ICU. So if it's a CV ICU, uh, having uh, you know, a cardio-intensivist might be really helpful. If it's a surgical ICU, having Steve or an anesthesia surgical critical care person is really helpful. Here's a big one that we learned the hard way. When we removed that one problem practitioner, there was a huge gap in, in the bedside presence at this one hospital. So a, a group of us came from Rochester and we filled in at, these small hospital, at this small hospital at the bedside. And it turns out that really drove integration with the EICU program. They could see us at the bedside. Um, we, we kind of you know, touted it. And then they saw more value when we were actually on the ground. All right, that's enough of that. Okay, I want to show you an a couple examples of what happens when these cultural processes break down. And so this is going to start with just an audio clip, and I'll just set the stage for you. This is, a, this is in a room of a patient who's on a ventilator, who, who's awake and able to interact, but on a ventilator. And the doctor is explaining something. There's a family member in the room who at the end of the clip sort of chimes in. And I'll just have you listen to this. Let's see if you can hear Pretty good. I mean, it sounds like a standard kind of interaction. Somebody who's probably nearing end of life. There's not a lot of options. We're talking about morphine. Here's what could happen. Clearly spoken, came through pretty well. The family member kind of helped interpret. And you could see the patient kind of nodding her head. Would anybody disagree with that kind of assessment? Not, not a bad interaction. Sounds pretty appropriate to me. Well, um, when you contextualize it, this is what that was. And I don't know if you probably saw this in the news a few months ago. This was the robot that came in and had a conversation, and that family member was really upset about that. Um, and I, as I look at that, I mean, you know, we all have tough conversations. Not all of them go very well, you know, at the bedside. Um, I, I interpreted this as a failure of culture on the ground. Like, you could see nurses walking by and kind of walking around and, and looking at the, at the robot, and you could tell that there was no good conversation that happened at the bedside to say, listen, at night, this is, this is our doctor. This is how it works. They're, they're going to do what you need to, to keep comfortable, and, and, and they're going to provide care. But this is what you should know. And I don't think those things happened. And in this day and age, the spin of the media, this all turned into, you know, how could this ever happen? But it does. It happens all the time. And then I don't know if anybody saw this. This is a documentary on HBO called Bleed Out. This, it's a tragic story about a woman who had a, a hip replacement and then pretty much bled out overnight, and it went unnoticed. And um, she survived but had a really complicated course, and it, and it went into all other aspects of healthcare that are all screwed up, the legal system and tort reform and healthcare costs and that sort of thing. But it also talked about this. That is an EICU camera. And it happened that this patient overnight was being monitored by a tele-ICU program. And, oh, my God, they're, at the, they're housed at the airport. How could anybody provide care when they're sitting at the airport? So they focused on these sort of weird details of, of um, the EICU program. It turns out that the EICU was only a small piece of the whole documentary, but... People on, at Mayo flipped out. It was, you know, it was over in Milwaukee. Look what, they're, look what they're talking about. How can we do this? 
Um, so every time this comes up in the media, you know, it spins over and over again. And it, when you dig a little bit deeper as you watch the whole thing, it's pretty obvious that the communication on the ground was horrible. Like the surgeon didn't sign off to anybody when he dropped the patient off. It was like evening hours, you know, just that kind of turnover hours when there isn't a lot of people around. The nurses didn't know what was going on. There were definite failures to rescue the patient, but um, they spun it to make it look like the, the, the EICU doctor at the airport didn't know what they were doing. All right, I want to switch gears and just spend the last few minutes on um, a couple things. One is one of the um, reported values of EICU programs is to keep the patients in their own community hospitals. And so is, is that true? It's, it's emotionally charged for lots of stakeholders, families, patients, providers, payers. Um, Craig Lilly was part of this study that was published from the New England Healthcare Institute. It's estimated that for every transfer you save, you, 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 every transfer you don't do, you save $10,000. I'm not sure where all that comes from, but that's been kind of thrown around. Uh, but there's no peer-reviewed, there have been no peer-reviewed publications. So in the absence of that data, programs still tout the benefits of keeping patients closer to home. So this is advanced ICU. They're, they're another big sort of um, for-profit uh, outfit uh, that provides tele-ICU care. They launched this hospital in late 2018. The use of this technology allows us to provide a wide range across the region, increasing efficiency and keeping many patients in their own communities and close to the support of their loved ones. Maybe true, maybe not. We wondered about that, and so we, we looked at this issue in our, own, in our own system. And we actually showed an increase in transfers to the Quaternary Center in Rochester after implementation. And what we did was we divided our six hospitals into two groups. One, uh, three of those hospitals are pretty highly resourced. They've got intensivists during the day who might come in at night. They've got maybe a cardiac, interventional cardiac program. They've got more subspecialty stuff. And then the other three hospitals are smaller, true community hospitals, hospitalists at the bedside, family medicine docs at the bedside, really no subspecialists. And we found that once an intensivist on our end gets their hands on a patient in one of those under-resourced centers, there's a lot of nervousness. On our part, and then that nervousness is transmitted to the folks on the other end, and the next thing you know, they're in an ambulance and they're coming. Whether they need to or not is another question. Um, I'm gonna sp skip some of the data, uh, except this, I wanted to show you this. So this was, in pre-ICU, the number, the percentage of transfers was 4.2%. After ICU, it was 5.7%. So a small blip, but it was statistically significant. And that's actually the national average for transfers from small hospitals to tertiary centers, about 5%. But one thing we tried to adjust for was, were the patients sicker over time? Did they get sicker and that's why they were coming more often? Well, at least by Apache, there was no difference. The Apache scores were about the same. And then here, this kind of caught our attention. It wasn't significant, but there was a trend that patients who came to Mayo then had a higher risk of death when they got there. So it makes you wonder, were we transferring patients in, in futility? They were coming to us, but in the end, maybe they, we were going to palliate them, or, or maybe we were going to change goals of care once they got and saw what they could be exposed to. So we looked at that. Um, we didn't find a significant trend in, um, it was a non-significant trend, but when we looked at things like goals of care changes and applying palliative care, they were not significantly different. So we didn't have a great explanation for it. So then, Here's that transfer bias I was talking about. Then within a few months after that, this paper comes out from the VA in Iowa City. ICU telemedicine reduces interhospital ICU transfers in the VAs. So there, theirs was bigger. The VA system is different. I haven't worked VA. I know it's inherently a little bit different than community hospitals. And they did the same methodology kind of before and after. And here's what they found. After tele-ICU, a significant reduction. Now, their rates are pretty low. I don't know that they, they probably don't transfer within their VA hospitals too often unless there's something really specific that they're looking for. And then, as is common, I mean, we, we've, got, we've got steel on because we get rocks thrown at us all the time. They were referring to our paper. They're probably a little upset that we scooped them by a couple months, but um, this particular telemedicine program, our program, may operate primarily to transfer patients to the tertiary center. We surmise that this staff encouraged patient transfers from local hospitals to the tertiary hospital. That was not our intent, obviously, but I, I think there is this bias that probably does drive some more transfers. All right, last few slides. I want to talk about burnout. 
That's an issue at our institution. Is it here? Could be, right? Could be. That's part of why we do this, why we do this telemedicine thing. We know the ICU practices are growing. For us, the night burden is becoming problematic. So we've got five or six intensivists in at night, overnight, on, on, the, on the campus at the bedsides, and we're growing. And I don't know about you, but I don't like doing nights, and as I get older, I like them less. Um, what we're also finding is that smaller hospitals are able to hire intensivists, but not enough to staff the nights. They love the days. It's great. They can work 6A to 6P, sign out to EICU, go home. It's a great model for them. They get paid a lot of money to do that. And probably as a, uh, partially as a, as a function of that, we're seeing more requests at our program for nighttime coverage. And um, we're lucky. I mean, we're highly resourced. We got, we got lots of people, and, and we're, we, we take this on. Um, but somebody got smart about this. And is there a way to turn night into day? Because remember, it might be night here in Minnesota or here in New Hampshire, but look at all this where it's daytime. <laughs> So Tim Buckman um, is the current editor of Critical Care Medicine. He's at Emory. He came up with the idea to move their operation at night halfway across the world. They started in Sydney. Now they're in Perth. It's 12 hours from Atlanta. Uh, so they, they take their doc and their nurse, and they go over there for a couple months at a time. They work the day shifts and take care of the patients at night back in Atlanta. Their NPs are at the bedside in Atlanta. There's no docs at the bedside at night in Atlanta anymore. They're all in the EICU center in Perth. And Tim has found this to be a huge satisfier. Uh, it's reducing attrition. It's prolonging time to retirement for some of these folks. He feels like it's reducing burnout. And uh, they're sold. And they're selling us on it. And so <laughs> I look out my window. It's not quite like this. It's a lot less beautiful than looking out your window here, but this is actually a shot from Fargo, the movie. Did you guys ever see Fargo? It actually looks like that. Um, when I look out my window in January, this is what I see. When Tim looks out his window in January, this is what he sees uh, from Perth. So we're actually, we, I hope that a year from now that I'm able to camera into Cheshire from Perth, Australia. That's, that's where our hope is to, is to partner with Emory. So thanks very much. I appreciate you sticking with me here 50 minutes. Mm. Great question. So um, we, when we started five years ago, it was all within the Mayo system, so it was, it was self-paid. Um, we kind of viewed it as cost avoidance by, you know, trying to improve metrics. I don't know if transferring those patients to Rochester really resulted in cost avoidance. We, I, don't know, I don't know the ins and outs of the, of the cost thing, but now um, you guys will be paying a little bit for it. As, we, as you join on, we've got some other external clients uh, who pay a fee. Basically, it's a per bed, per year fee um, that most of these programs run on. So that virtual care center at Mercy, 800 patients, you know, somewhere $50,000 a bed. It's a lot of money. It pays for those virtual centers. And flights to Perth. <laughs> and flights to Perth. about implications for medical education. Um, the, the rate of people going into primary care has not gone up. 85% um, of the graduates of our medicine program go into um, specialties. So we're, and our residents are seeing great role models in the pulmonary critical care intensivist program. So they want to become you. Um, so as we make more like you, um, what's going to happen to them and to these programs? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the programs are, are growing. The demand for them is, is higher. I, I think we're years away from where you might see a change in that, in that set point. I think, you know, for us, we're getting, we're getting tapped all the time with requests to, to build programs. Um, places like Mercy are, are still growing, gangbusters. Uh, people are coming on to this halfway across the world thing, so the models are, are better. But you're right, one thing that I didn't do, and I, and I left these slides out, there, there is a little bit of literature on um, the role of the tele-ICU program in the training of not only residents and fellows, but also sort of new nurses just into the practice. And so there is, there is some literature on that. There's concern that um, 
the, the intervention of the tele-ICU folks could impede the education of the trainees, but there's probably a little bit more data showing that we can enhance that. I'm wondering what data there is about the impact of EICU interventions on patient and family experience. There is a literature on that. Um, I just saw a paper not long ago looking at, and it kind of it kind of uh, aligns with that CNN video, a whole workflow to move to do a sort of a hospice consult um, telemedically, and get the patient to the right level of care through that. Um, with family meetings and um, you know and hospice consults, so there there is there is a literature on that. I didn't touch on it, but there's there's a pretty robust literature on that. And I think it's it's growing, but you know um, it only takes one mishap for it to be undermined, and and that's a good example. I mean, for for a week, all anybody could talk about was how this robot could possibly come into a room and have a discussion with a family, but in most instances, they're appropriate. When oh. one comes to M&M here, very often we get the sense that the patient isn't really known, that who's, who's in charge, who's talking, who knows their real experience. Can you see the dilemma here, unless the people that are working in the outside hospitals are trained, that this is just one more thing to remove the patient from someone who knows them and someone who cares about them. On one hand, I can see being excited that Big Brother means that we've got all the data. On the other hand, is it Big Brother that you want taking care of you, or is it someone right there that you can talk to? So could you talk about how this can negatively or positively affect the people, people who are seeing the patients yeah, right. That, that's a really important point. I think that gets to the sort of culture of it all. Um, one of our major messages to a program that we were that we'd be starting up on would be: we are a supplement. We're an extra set of eyes, but we're not the final word on the patient's plan of care. So <clears throat> we might make recommendations, but in the end, the people at the bedside. Uh, decide the trajectory of that patient's care. And that isn't always messaged well, and, I, and it can cause confusion, particularly for people on the other end. But you're right. A lot of times it comes down to how resourced is the local, the local practice, and is there somebody that can provide that, that bedside experience. Um, we try not to get in the way of that, but it happens. And you're absolutely right. It can't interfere with that. Rich. Oh, Rich. Could you talk just a moment about, um, you've been very externally focused from the hub and spoke, but what about the opportunities for the internal monitoring or the participation in the internal ICUs? Yeah. Mayo or here or other sites. Can you just reflect a little on the role of having the, the uh, telemedicine program or tele-ICU program focus internally? Yeah. So Craig Lilly's is a great example of that. That's all sort of internally focused. The Emory program is all internally focused. They don't do anything external. Um, we've only started to, to begin thinking about this uh, as we've grown so much, and <clears throat> and particularly because our night in, inpatient night commitment is high. So we've started to look at whether we can bring in, rather than hiring one more intensivist, we'll bring in the camera, and um, somebody else can can help offload that. Um, some some of the uh, papers that I referenced are all internal, so there is there is quite um, there, there's quite a literature on internal monitoring. And is that internal is also in the ICU of the hospital? Yes, yeah. right. So so the the tertiary center in Worcester is part of Craig's data, and and if you think about it, you've got much more control over how you run things. You don't have to have those same sort of cultural discussions that you would have to have with an external hospital. It should work well. Uh, thanks for that excellent talk. I really learned a lot from it. Could you talk a little bit about the human dynamics between the expert at the central site and the expert in the local ICU? A couple of times you referenced that to be successful, 
Um, I think you even used the term the central site has to have a heavy hand in when they make a decision that it's implemented. Well, how does it play out if there is a professional disagreement on what to do yeah. in a very complex patient where it isn't clear what the right thing to do is between the distant central voice and the on-site? How, how do you handle that professionally and emotionally and have it work out so the next day you can pick up with a positive experience? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question, and it, and it happens. Um, principle number one is that the bedside always prevails, the person at the bedside. If, if, if they're there and they're directing care, they have final say in the, in the care plan. Um, and we have had conflict where maybe there's a judgment call there and maybe we don't agree. I think we don't, we try, I try not to have folks quibble on, um, you know, do I use a calcium channel blocker or do I use a beta blocker, that, that kind of stuff. That, that never works, that gets us into trouble. Um, and, uh, but, but we do occasionally have, have this. We try to connect with the, the local doc every day to kind of run the list and, and kind of understand what they're thinking, things that aren't in the chart but are happening in the background. We gotta try and learn that better. I don't think we do a great job of it and it's an ongoing effort. Thank you. Thank you, this is very interesting. And obviously it's improving quality of care in Rochester and Wisconsin, but systems are designed to produce the results that we see from them. Whether it be an HMO in the 1970s or for-profit HMOs in 19 today. So, in, in implementing these systems, you have an academic center improving care affiliated with that academic system. Is Philips um, also implementing this for about uh, for-profit hospitals in settings that may not actually be uh, remote or have that need for other uh, purposes and to get other outcomes? Yeah, that's a really great question, and, and it's. Uh... It's dear, near to my heart because we, we just disconnected with a, with a hospital that was um, acquired by HCA, which is a for-profit organization. And we tried to work with them for a year to two, and um, <clears throat> they just weren't resourcing to the level that we thought they needed to be resourced to provide good care. So we ended up parting ways with them. And I don't know, I mean, you could only ask what the motivations were there, but they didn't have enough docs. I mean, there was a patient, you know, patients would be dying actively in front of us. They tried to call the doc, the doc can't come. And so um, it can be misused, I think, to the extent at, as a cost-saving measure at the expense of some of those important things that you mentioned. All right, well, it is 9 o'clock. I have one additional questions. <laughs> Again, thank you.